Hello, and welcome to another episode of Five Things, an independent web series dedicated to answering the five burning tech questions you have about technologies and workflows in the media creation space, tech stuff I dig and how it's used. I'm your host, Michael Thomas. On this episode, we'll be continuing on with our exciting storage adventure and examining drives, size, spindles, and protection in part two of our three-part series. We'll be holding off on ODA, LTO, and cloud storage for a future episode. If you've missed part one of five things on storage, I highly suggest you go back and get your tech on. On this episode, as I did last episode, I'll be joining a current favorite libation during this episode. This seemed to resonate with many of you. I'm glad all of you could come for the brain power and stay for the buzz. This time, it's off the rails from Carl Strauss, a brewery down in San Diego. Off the rails is a double batch of their red trolley ale. I love me some reds. I'm going to pour a glass while we get started. At any trade show and at any electronics store, you're going to be drowned in a sea of storage options. Each of these solutions, and I use the term solution lightly, at their core rely on the ability of a storage medium to receive, save, and deliver data as fast and as reliably as possible. But what separates the bargain bin drives from the enterprise ones? Let's take a look at some of the most important factors. First, we have size. The bigger, the better, folks. More storage equals more space for your important media. Two, three, and four terabyte drives are pretty common nowadays. What you need to be aware of is that a larger capacity does not necessarily mean faster storage. Four one terabyte drives striped together can deliver more throughput than a single four terabyte drive. Don't let the size fool you. You humans, when are you gonna learn that size doesn't matter? Just cause something's important doesn't mean it's not very, very small. How small? Next, we have the drive's interface. Each drive interface has its own quirks and own thresholds. But for our discussion, it's the main limiting factor is how much data the connection allows to flow through it at any one time. SATA or SAS are the most common interface nowadays for single drives or small arrays. These interface types typically allow for more connection than most any single drive could deliver. Thus, a SAS or SATA connection is rarely your bottleneck until you get into many striped drives, also known as an array. Once you get into this realm, we move to another more robust interface solution. However, as we discussed in part one, a fatter pipeline to and from the array may not be what you need. Aside from capacity, the most common analytic is RPMs, or the rotational speed of the platters inside the hard drive. The faster the RPMs, the better. Commonly, speeds of 5400, 7200, 10,000, and 15,000 RPM are the numbers you're most likely to come across. 5,400 RPMs are never recommended for media usage. The speed just isn't there for a pleasurable editing experience. 7,200 RPM is generally accepted to be the baseline for media usage. Next, we have the disk buffer, also known as the disk cache or cache buffer. This is where data is stored on the drive temporarily before it's read from or written to the spinning platters. This allows time for the disk to catch up if the request for writing and reading to the drive cannot be met immediately, or if the data is being frequently accessed. However, it mainly makes the reading to and writing from a drive more efficient, organized, and causes less wear and tear on the spinning platters. Bigger is traditionally better. Lastly, we have MTBF, which means mean time between failure. 
This is muy importante. The lower the MTBF, the less robust the drive is compared to others with the Enterprise branding. This means the drive may fail earlier in its lifetime of expected use compared to an Enterprise-class drive with a higher MTBF. This also comes at a price premium. Sometimes better parts, higher tolerance, and more strict QC. If you want the steak, you gotta pay for it, lest you get ground chuck. I keep a sizable supply of ground chuck in my desk. How sweet, fresh meat. Now, those of you who are using solid-state drives, or as the case with the new Mac Pro, flash memory, many of the terms we've discussed are not applicable. However, spinning disks are still the overwhelming option for additional storage due to its large capacity and lower price point. We'll dive into SSDs and flash memory on a future episode. Many of the terms we've discussed already can be confusing, and many manufacturers have given various grades of drives consumer-friendly names to more easily get you the drive you need. Let's examine one such naming schema, those used by Western Digital. Western Digital uses colors to signify what drives are best used for each scenario. While I use Western Digital as an example, drives with specs, which are similar to Western Digital's black classification, are what you want in a mass storage solution. These are not your father's hard drives, are typically not the ones you see in the weekly electronics flyer. You need to seek them out. These are excellent as single drives and also work in a striped environment. You know, it's funny, the new ones aren't like Gizmo. The one with the stripe seems to be the leader. Now, we need a chassis to house the drives. There's a sea of options out there. However, when you buy a shared storage solution, the solution provider, whether it be manufacturer or vendor, has already factored in all of these drive variables and incorporated these factors into building or tweaking a drive chassis in order to create a turnkey storage package just for you. More generic chassis that come without drives are somewhat less optimized as to minimize compatibility issues. Normally, creating your own JBOD, or just a bunch of drives, involves using these universal chassis, and is typically not the first choice in a demanding production atmosphere. Performance can suffer in demanding environments, and support can be difficult when you're combining multiple technology partners. These solutions, if done right, rely on a battle-tested combination of hardware components. Off-the-shelf components put together because the cables fit will never deliver the performance a tuned system can. If at all possible, avoid product scattershot. RAID, 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 oh, how you complicate the. A RAID is a redundant array of independent, sometimes inexpensive disks. It's a way of combining multiple physical drives to appear as one volume to your computer. More disk spindles rated together equates to more options for performance, throughput, and data redundancy. Take this scenario. Suppose a drive fails, MTBF, once in one million operations. We don't know when it will happen, we just know it probably will, and before one million total operations. Where this happens is up to chance, environment, and usage. Now, let's say we raid two drives together as one, because that would yield twice as much space and speed. This obviously increases the risk of MTBF. Plus, if one, yes one, drive starts to smoke, you've lost all of your data because your drives are spanned together. You can't edit with half of every bit and byte gone. Given this truth, now multiply this by four drives. 
How about 16 drives or more? This is Russian roulette geek style. Combining drives in this manner is known as RAID 0. This RAID level delivers the largest amount of throughput and capacity, but absolutely no support for preserving data if one drive dies. This absolutely bites when it comes to data availability. The loss of one drive in a RAID 0 array could be a massive problem for your video editor. You just lost the entire movie. That's no problem, right? You could crash. Lost all my data. Hardware. You mainframe? Burnt. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. What the fuck are we gonna do now? What are we gonna do? Since this is not acceptable in most circumstances, other RAID data protection and performance formats have been developed to ensure there is some kind of redundant distribution of data across multiple disks. While there is as many as the day is long, let's examine those you will most likely find out in the wild when dealing with video shared storage solutions. RAID 1. If RAID 0 doubles your storage, then conversely, RAID 1 cuts the cumulative size in half. Why? RAID 1, also known as mirroring, ensures that in the event of the rapture and half of all of your drives in your array blow chunks, that you don't lose any of your data because a one-to-one -one copy of that data has been made on the extra storage. This can cause a slight hit in throughput, after all, your data is being written twice, and has outlined a massive hit in storage space. Those of you who have used Avid's Unity have used RAID and 0 and RAID 1 for years. It's all Unity supported. Most other shared storage solutions also offer RAID 0 and RAID 1 as well. RAID 2, 3, and 4. Ah, they're outdated or yielded unnecessarily by RAID 5. Move along. By the way, whatever happened to Leonard Parts 1 through 5? Whose five previous adventures would, I'm sure, have enthralled you, had they not been confiscated in the interests of world security. Oh, thanks. RAID 5. Probably the most popular RAID set out there. It balances throughput and redundancy with minimal overhead. This is achieved through parity. What is parity, you ask? When data is written, parity data is introduced and written with your video data across the drives. In the event a drive fails, this parity data is combined with existing media to recreate the lost media. As one can imagine, this decreases performance slightly, not only while the initial parity data is created and written, but if a drive dies, the array needs to recreate the media for usage in real time. All of this being said, RAID 5 allows the speed benefit afforded by multiple drives acting as one, along with great redundancy. As a bonus, if a drive dies, most shared storage chassis can rebuild the lost media once a correct drive is inserted into the chassis to replace a dead drive, restoring your array to its former glory. Just give it until tomorrow, it will usually take a bit of time and you'll see a modest performance hit during the rebuild process, but hey, your media is not gone. RAID 6. RAID 6 is very similar to RAID 5, although the user has one more guard at the gate, two drives worth of parity are written instead of one. If a drive does die, there remains one drive still spinning and keeping the array functional. Same basic performance and storage hits as RAID 5. RAID 6 is slightly less common when seeking out video RAIDs. I usually ballpark a 12 to 20% hit on storage space and throughput for your shared storage solution to handle a RAID 5. This varies by manufacturer, but the 12-20% plays heavily into my storage formula mentioned later. What are the survival probabilities? 20% at best. 
I know, no one wants to lose space, but it's better than losing half of your space with RAID 1 or having no redundancy, a la RAID 0. Other less popular RAID formats include RAID 0 plus 1, RAID 1 plus 0, RAID 0 plus 3, RAID 3 plus 0, etc. Consult your local storage geek if you really want to delve into these. It should be noted that a RAID set can either be created at the hardware level or at the software level. In Windows or on OS X, for example, you can RAID drives, usually RAID 0 or 1, rarely RAID 5, from within the OS. This is a software RAID, and while it works, it's usually not as fast or bulletproof as a hardware RAID 0 or 1, which, if available, is done on the chassis which contains your drives or the host card inside your computer. Most hardware RAID controllers are designed specifically for RAID 1, 5, and 6. Hardware RAID is faster than software RAID for managing the layout of data and parity bits. And now for my patent pending formula. Let's take a one terabyte drive. Small and very easy on my math challenged brain. Stupid and tedious and pointless. I went to art school to be expressive, not to perform some pointless tasks like some lab rat. As you probably know, marketing one terabyte does not equate to one terabyte usable storage. This hard drive loss is due to the base 2 math rather than base 8. Thus, when you begin to multiply bits, bytes, kilobytes, megabytes, gigabytes, you end up with less than 1 terabyte. And of course, marketing wins. 1 terabyte is easier to sell than 930 gigabytes. So, we're settled with a 7% loss. Keep that number written down. Now, we need to initialize the drives and reformat them into a RAID. Let's say we go with RAID 5, a good balance of speed and redundancy. RAID 5 in hardware can be between 12 and 20% in loss of space due to the aforementioned redundancy. Again, this is different for each manufacturer, so no need for the math hate mail. Let's use 15% and subtract that from 930 gigabytes. This comes out to approximately 790 gigs. So now we're down 210 gigs from the advertised size. As I mentioned earlier, performance can decrease as the drive fills up if the data is written sequentially on the disks. Some shared storage manufacturers, uh, Facilis comes to mind, scatter the data across the drives, so a user never sees a performance hit as performance is equal regardless of the amount of free space. That's in the minority, so the magic number before a noticeable loss in throughput seems to be around 80%. Thus, we subtract another 20% from the 790 gigabytes. This comes out to 632 gigabytes. That's right, folks. Of that shiny new one terabyte drive, once introduced in a RAID 5 and given some room for performance, we have nearly a 40% loss. I should preface this with the disclaimer that these storage solutions are uninfluenced decisions based on my experience. As I mentioned earlier, I prefer the one throat to choke philosophy when choosing solutions, especially storage. Thus, on a desktop level, I'm a fan of GTEC and Sonnet with CalDigit as a distant third. All are relatively inexpensive, have decent support, and are readily available. I'm often asked about Drobo, Synology, QNAP, and other more generic storage. I like these solutions when ease of use is paramount, and you're looking for storage that can be used in many different scenarios, and when you can tolerate less than optimal performance. These solutions tend to sacrifice peak performance and quality of service for ease of use and trying to work in every use case, not just the media space. They typically don't have management software to handle multiple editors using the same media at the same time, which can cause havoc when products and media are being used by multiple editors. 
That being said, I've had a Synology unit at home for several years and use it on a daily basis as a home media server and as a repository for high-res media files when I'm onlining. Once we get into the more enterprise storage solutions, the playing field fills up quickly. To complicate things further, many of the factors in choosing these storage solutions rely on the software or sharing ability on top of the drives we've just spent time discussing. So we'll save that for the next episode. Did I miss anything in part two? Uh, drives, size, spindles, and protection? Have another red ale you'd like to recommend? Let me know in the comments via Twitter or on Facebook, and please share this series with your friends. Stay tuned for part three, management, permissions, and support. Same bat time, same bat channel. And as always, thanks for watching.